1: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history.
0: Hello, and welcome to our final episode of this series focusing on the maritime history of Wales. My name is Abeli Wotton and today I'll be learning more about Welsh shipwrecks from the First World War. During my research, I came across a fantastic project called the U-Boat Project, which has been documenting and reconstructing stories from World War I off of Wales's coast. The project focuses not only on unearthing and recording shipwrecks, such as the U-Boats from the war, but also the lives of communities and families affected by this event. Our history of naval war, including medical ships and importation of supplies like food, has been hugely influential on Wales today and is often overlooked. I was extremely interested to hear more about these diverse communities and all of the stories that might have remained buried if not for the work of the U-boat project. Here to tell me all about the project is Dr Michael Roberts, a marine geologist and research fellow at the Centre for Applied Marine Sciences School of Ocean Sciences at Bangor University. Michael specialises in the application of multi-beam sonar surveys to understand physical marine processes, as well as researching sea level change around the Welsh coastline. Between 2016 and 2019, in collaboration with the Royal Commission and Nautical Archaeology Society, Michael led the Bangor team in the HLF-funded Europe Project Wales, 1914-1918. This project linked maritime collections held by local maritime museums and private individuals with larger national records and archives. I hope you enjoy the episode. I certainly found it fascinating to learn about how much of Wales's naval history is yet to be uncovered, and what is being done to change this. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Michael.
1: No problem. Glad to be of help.
0: So, if you wouldn't mind, please tell our listeners just a little bit more about Wales's U-boat project.
1: Okay, well, this is taking us back a few years now, during the period where we were sort of commemorating the... Um, with the World War One for a hundred years or so. So obviously there were a lot of projects underway associated with that. But coming from a maritime background and working in, in marine sciences um, and living on the coast, it was um, always something that's been of interest to me is the sort of elements or aspects of World War I activity that took place in the sea. And I don't think people are aware or were aware, uh, aware of the fact that, you know, much of the activities during World War One. I mean, people tend to think of them happening 600 miles to the southeast of Belgium and France, etc. But, you know, there was a lot of activity going on right underneath the cliffs around our coast. And I mean literally under the cliffs, which is for me as well. I mean, it was as surprising for me as, as much as anything else. Um, and all this came about from work that I'd been doing, strangely enough, associated with marine renewable energy. So we're trying to support that industry and that sector to grow in Wales, because Wales is really well placed for um, developing marine renewable energy projects because it has strong tides. You know, it has a lot of waves associated with wind and big tidal ranges. So there's been a lot of that sort of effort and activity in that sector. But understanding the environment, the marine environment, is going to be critical. And I was more interested in the physical processes that are associated with putting things on the seabed and what will happen to them over time, on decadal timescales. And obviously, the industry isn't created yet, it's in its infancy. But I did do some work early on in 2013, 14, associated with some shipwrecks around our coast, and it struck me that there were a lot of them, a lot more than even I'd appreciated. And so we were looking at structures really to gain insights into how marine processes have interacted with structures on the seabed, as I say, and shipwrecks provided that perfect opportunity because they'd been there uh, for a long time. They come in many different forms, so they're all unique, really, I guess. They're different shapes, different sizes. They're in different orientations relative to the tidal flows. They're on different seabed types, and they've been down there for different periods of time. But also, not just from the physical side of it, there was some interest from the biological side of it. So um, structures can tend to act as artificial reefs. Um, So eventually, quite rapidly, actually, they become colonised by other organisms, and they in turn are predated on off, you know, the other organisms feed on them, and so fish, etc. And then, of course, marine mammals will also feed on the fish, and and so there there are huge concerns or issues around the development of marine renewable energy projects in Wales because we have we are lucky to have those kind of animals in our environment, and um, the last thing we want to do is kind of endanger them or you know create problems for them. So understanding, as I say, the biological and the physical aspects of, of structures is critical to that sector. And so that's where shipwrecks come in, as I said, and I started surveying them, as I say, way back in 2014. And, and we've done a pretty thorough um, job, really, of looking at all the wrecks now around the Welsh coast. We're talking about three 400 different sites, and many of those, the most significant proportion of those are associated with World War I and World War II. But also there's this heritage and cultural aspect and, and that's how I got involved with the u Book Project. So as I say, going back to the commemoration for the World War I centenaries, um, we, we thought, well, we'd take a, f- you know, a small sample of these wrecks and try and understand a little bit more about them, their history, you know, their sense of place in terms of the conflict. And it all came from there.
0: Of course, um, that's fantastic. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what goes into kind of building those stories and doing that research when you find a particular wreck, um, and to build those individual stories.
1: Great. Well, okay. As I say, I think the, the one thing that struck us was how many shipwrecks there were. But when we actually went out and surveyed them, and I should just explain, we use a, a survey ship that has a high, well, you know, a cutting-edge piece of technology called a multibeam sonar, which allows us to build up a sonar-derived 3D point cloud or image of the structure on the seabed, and so you know, you can see. Um, using sound because you obviously can't use optics because the water's not clear enough, not like Bahamas or the Mediterranean, um, not around Wales, definitely not. So, so sonar is the way we, we, we look at these ships in any great level of detail. And um, as I say, you know, some of the, the data that we're getting off them, you, you, can, you can see masts and funnels and boilers and, you know, the shape of the ship generally, whether it's been broken up, whether it's got a torpedo hole in it, which is just incredible to see um in some cases um but the one thing that did become apparent very very quickly was when we went to a certain wreck site which was purported to be a particular steamship the the general dimensions often didn't match they did they did in certain circumstances but you know we have to say a significant proportion of these vessels did not match with the dimensions of the ship that that the wreck was supposed to be of so obviously it wasn't that wreck it was something else and so um and there are also quite a significant number of unknowns out there so quite often based on ancient older data you know an identity has been attributed to some of these wrecks um probably 30% of the case of the time that they're, they're correct 30% of the time they're incorrect and 30% of the time they're unknown something like that of that order anyway i i hadn't appreciated fully but we would obviously need to know what the ship was, because we need to know how long it's been there. If we're looking at processes, physical processes, you know, um, whether it's set been there 70 years or 100 years or 50 years, um, that's critical. And that's where um, I started a collaboration with um, Dr. Innes McCartney from Bournemouth University, who's been sort of instrumental in taking this project forward, really. So, so I've just gone out and collected the data, basically built the pieces for a jigsaw puzzle that Innes is now been putting together for quite a period of time um and that's what it is as i say these wrecks they're they're a jigsaw puzzle you, you you can't really go out and look at a couple of wrecks and kind of start attributing identities to them you you need all the pieces um and that's what we've been able to do through my project work um the funding that i've had so so we've got this lovely data set now of a uh, you know having surveys of all these vessels in a given area a geographical area but this is just a small area around britain you know where the irish sea effectively and the same will apply around the whole of the uk and wider field obviously internationally so um so yeah it's been a fascinating journey um so far i'm looking forward to seeing some of the results the outputs from this later uh, this year or early next year and I think, you know, there have been some fascinating things. I've been drawn into it. You can't help but not be drawn to it. So I'm a, I'm a geologist by, by trade, but I've just become fascinated with the history because each of these ships has its own story, its own sense of place, you know, and identity. And the stories, they're just incredible. And I think that links very closely or strongly to different um, communities. You know, there are relatives of some of these people who have lost their lives on some of these ships that are still around and want to know, you know, where they're ancestors or you know close relatives lost their lives um i found it quite amazing i hadn't realized again you know the 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 technology the time 100 years ago to have a u-boat just patrolling around our coast where everyone's going (laughs) just farming or what have you and literally within a few hundred meters of the cliffs these u-boats were waiting so obviously in wartime these ships are transiting through those shipping lanes up the Irish Sea into Liverpool, etc., or down to Cardiff. Um, But they would have to do it, because they knew that there were many U-boats around, they would have to do it under cover of darkness. They wouldn't have their lights on, necessarily. Um, So they would be travelling in the dark. And, of course, the U-boats then couldn't see them unless the U-boats came in really close to the coast and then looked out to sea. Against the horizon to see a silhouette of a ship passing on the horizon, and that, so that the U-boats were even closer than the ships themselves to us. And that, that I just found that quite, quite amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, and as you just said, it's not only the ships that you're looking at, but also the communities that built up around that. Um, and with any project involved with you know the sea and sea travel, you get communities from all over the world, really um so I'd love to hear more about that
1: yeah I mean that was fascinating because I thought you know World War One it's British and it's Germany (laughs) it's Britain and Germany fighting together but in the in the marine environment that's not the case at all so uh, you know a lot of these ships had you know international connections a lot of them were French Spanish Norwegian Russian um obviously there were German U-boats out there but you know Greek um registered vessels you know just astounding that European kind of or international dimension in terms of the, where the ships were from and who they were owned, who owned them, etc. But then you start looking at the crew lists as well, and, and that is just even more diverse. I mean, as is the case today, I mean, a lot of the crews were made up of people from Africa, you know, the Indian subcontinent, Far East. Um, all these people that were hundreds of thousands of miles away from their homes, who were on these ships, travelling around the UK, keeping us supplied and they lost their lives here. You know, and I think, you know, we've got to, as I say, I think it's important that we kind of recognized their efforts, the only way we can do that is try and work out what's what out there. So hopefully this is just a pilot in the Irish Sea and the start of something much bigger. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong
0: place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: um for the future and i think i think one of the important things to remember about all this work is that we're really fortunate that we have that technology now to do this so the sonar technology and that hasn't been around all the time so we we couldn't have done this in the 1950s and 60s it was you know it just wasn't there but unfortunately all these wrecks are degrading as well so the clock is really ticking so although technology is getting better all the time the condition of the wrecks is deteriorating quite rapidly. So I think we have a small window here now to kind of take this forward, build on it, and survey all these um, other vessels around the world and, you know, apply our learning, share our learning with other organisations so that so that we can try and do this before, you know, 50 or 100 years' time, all that you'll have left on the seabed in most locations will be just an indistinguishable mound of, you know, broken metal and ballast and what have you. So So really... This, this has to happen in the next decade or so, I would suggest, before it's too late to to make any sort of reasonable, you know, 80 to 90 percent kind of um, identities on, on, on some of these ships, which is which is the object of the exercise.
0: It's incredible how much has been overlooked, as you were saying, and in terms of the families involved in maritime um, history of the war, another overlooked group are women, really. Um, and how do they feature in the kind of research that you're doing?
1: Yeah, well, well, obviously there were many women who were passengers because they were passenger cargo ships. So, so, so ships weren't just exclusively ferries. They obviously transported goods. Um, so, but you would often have people, you know, travelling to and from ports. And so, I think, I think from our, I'm just looking at this sort of I've, I've done some ballpark calculations in terms of these ships that we've looked at three hundred sites or something like. We are talking about the loss of over three thousand people. You know, on average, it's ten people per ship. Sometimes nobody um, perished unfortunately, but sometimes there were casualties that were, you know, in the 70s or even the hundreds, 80s, hundreds, you know, where people were lost in one, one event. Also, there are there are hospital ships out there. We've surveyed one of the hospital ships that was located off so there were nurses on board who'd kind of, you know, come across from, you know, West Indies and things like that, and so, so you know, they were professionals working on these ships as well, so um, yeah, certainly women feature very strongly in this.
0: Definitely. Um, The hospital ships are something that I wouldn't think about immediately when I do think about the First World War. Um, So it's, it's really interesting to hear about. And these these projects are so community based for the people listening. Is there any way that they can get involved if they think their community might have played a role?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the information that's out there now that you think might be just sitting there in someone's house that relates to some, as I say, long lost uncle and what have you, and their, their time at sea and, and what have you. Some of the information that's come out of, out of the U-Book project, for example, was, was just astounding. Um, this is, as I say, a small project, relatively speaking. But then we're using social media and obviously these museum exhibits and things to kind of communicate what we were doing. But social media, it don't underestimate that because i think somebody in germany um picked up on on the project and uh i think th- this is n- not my work directly but it was associated with the kind of you know that you know the people's stories associated with these wrecks but i i think in one instance um a u-boat surfaced and uh, told everyone to get off very politely before they sank the ship everyone got off safely thank goodness and then the Germans came on to destroy the ship with explosives rather than use a torpedo um there was a dog still on the boat so they took the u-boat crew took the, the dog off the, sh- the vessel that had been left put it on the u-boat destroyed the ship and then sailed off home and uh you know when when the crew of the vessel that was lost got back to shore they said you know we they killed our dog you know they you know, we lost a dog and everything, it was quite sad. Lottie, I think the name of the dog was Lottie. Aww. Um so, so this is a story, and then just coincidentally, someone in Germany kind of got back to us and said, um I recognise that dog. And and she actually had pictures so the U boat commander took the dog and took it home back to Germany. And I think it was her his granddaughter or great granddaughter had photographs of the dog with her. In a garden in germany you know
0: wow and it's just, that's such an incredible story
1: yeah 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 but i think that's just the tip of the iceberg in 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 terms of some of the stories that that haven't been told yet you know that the the, the the this kind of work has the potential to tell and i think you know that that's really quite um quite powerful as well as uh, interesting you know about just humanity and that we sort of go through these awful things and we're told to do what we've got to do and yeah but I think it's just the tip of the iceberg I'm sure there are many many untold stories still out there but it, it is critical that we identify the ships so that we have this kind of focal point really to bring these stories out because we can talk about the ships and we are lost, but you can't really relate them to anything until you actually have something tangible associated with you know a physical structure on the seabed I think that's 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 important the other thing I have to say about our sonar work is I mean sonar is just sort of as you say, giving a shape and a an image of the ship as to how it is now, but there's lots of other information that's critical to supporting the identification of this, and that's marine archives. So we need plans of the ships, for example, to reconcile the identities. And this is where Ines' expertise comes in with all this. I mean, he's, who he works on that marine archives and positional data, you know, Admiralty records, even Kriegsmarine marine, U-boat um, records, effectively, to bring them all together to kind of give that really strong evidence base to identify what a ship is potentially um but by no means that's not a guarantee still i mean it it raises the possibility that this is the right shape the right size the right location it's probably but never definitely until you actually have physical proof and that's the one thing we haven't because you can never be able to get that from some of these wrecks are in 100 and 150 meters water plus um so they're beyond you know You'd need the resources of NASA to get down to each one, um, basically. Um, that will never happen because just economically, it's not viable. I don't think so. But being able to get to within, you know, a reasonable degree of confidence to kind of say that's probably that ship is 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 better than what we've got at the moment. And so that that's what we're aiming for. So it, it, I must emphasise that it's not, you know, work with science and absolutes. It's 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 almost, but not quite. But it's it's better than what we've got for sure.
0: Of course and it is so important that we do kind of record the history and um, share it as well because it's an important part of who we are and our national identity. Um, obviously you have a lot of information on your website, is there anywhere else that people can go to see findings physically? Um, well
1: well, as I say hopefully, um, you know, we'll try and expand on this. I'm, I mean we're obviously thinking world war one but it won't be too long before we start thinking about world war two um so i'm hoping there will be other opportunities to get some funding to kind of you know bring the data out the data is the data i mean you know there's there are ways and means we can make that available but i think it's the stories that kind of bring these things to life as well and it's just finding ways and means to do that um I can say that today is actually fortunate that we're talking today because um i'm part of a project that's just been awarded a large um, bit of funding it 's through the um, arts and humanities research council it's involving fifteen universities it's across the u k and it's, it, it, it it's 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 called um, um, towards a national collection and part of our work or contribution to one of the projects under that funding will be to connect all these disparate museum and heritage collections and it's it's kind of bringing all these collections together so someone has a the focal point which is the sonar survey the identified wreck in the in the irish sea and then from that a kind of you know range of different links to all these as i say disparate collections and i, th- I think if if that works as as we hope it will you know it, it as i say it will link all these individuals and communities to, to these physical structures which will be great
0: Yeah, that's fantastic news. Um, Very exciting. I'll keep an eye on the website. It sounds like there's lots of interesting stuff uh, on its way. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been really, really interesting. And I always love to hear the work that's being done to uncover some of the history that has been overlooked.
1: No problem. Grateful to and happy to share all our uh, interesting research because it's so rewarding as well. So we, we do get a lot out of this.
0: Thank you for listening. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, and indeed the whole series, please do go and find us on Instagram and YouTube and show your support. Please particularly take the time to check out the YouTube page where we are doing fabulous things to present the maritime past in new ways. I particularly like the video that uses artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads to life. And of particular relevance to this episode is the video that animates a really complex technical plan of a First filled War submarine so that it made sense. To get even more involved you can go and join the Society for Nautical Research for a small annual subscription fee. You receive four copies a year of our Mariner's Mirror journal and you become part of a community dedicated to preserving and celebrating our maritime history. As always we love to hear from you so please do get in touch with any questions, comments or thoughts about our podcasts. It has been a pleasure to delve deeper into Wales's maritime history with you. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.